Hello, I'm Oliver Colling, and this is the My 70s TV Childhood Christmas Special. Hello and welcome back to My 70s TV Childhood for our festive special edition. Well, the presents are wrapped, the lights are on the tree and the turkey is about to be stuffed and we're ready to pull a Christmas cracker to take our minds back to Christmas as a child in 1970s Britain and how television was such a central part of our festive entertainment. And for this episode, we're going to concentrate on that staple of 70s Christmas TV, the Christmas special. Now, as was the case with many of the TV shows we watched at Christmas, this episode of My 70s TV Childhood was actually recorded in July, when temperatures in the UK were at 40 degrees centigrade, or 104 degrees in old money, which I still prefer. Anything over 100 degrees just sounds so much hotter. Yes, we've decked out the studio with tinsel, and put Slade on the gramophone just to get us in the mood. Or at least that's what we would have done had we been making the show in the 1970s, where the Christmas and New Year TV schedules were a major battle in the ongoing ratings war between BBC and ITV. Just to remind any younger viewers, or those who are listening from outside of the UK, in those days we had just three TV channels. Yes, three. BBC One, BBC Two and ITV. There was no streaming, no catch-up service, Even VCR and video recording was not widely available. So if you wanted to watch something on the telly, you had to sit down and watch it at the time it was on. Simple as. Like some of the television schedules of the time, and due to the fact I'm getting a bit older, and we've now done over 50 of these podcasts, there are likely to be some repeats in this Christmas episode. So if I start telling you something you've already heard, please just sort of think of me like like a a nice elderly relative who tells the same stories every Christmas, to the point that it becomes a sort of family tradition. So wherever you are, pour yourself a baby sham, or a glass of QC British sherry, and let's take a short trip back to the time when we were happy with a Cadbury selection box, Action Man, and Billy Smart's Circus and the Harlem Globetrotters for Christmas. Now, the truth is that Christmas of the 1970s was more about television than at any time before or since. From the long-anticipated arrival of the Christmas double issues of the Radio Times and the TV Times, yes, as we've explained before, we did have two. The BBC had their own listings magazine and ITV had their own listings magazine as well, and you had to buy both of them. To the appearance of Ronco's latest fantastic gadget, and of course, KTEL's brilliant new album, which was not available in the shops. Now, if you think I'm overdoing the importance of the TV schedule, just look at some of the ratings achieved. Morecambe and Wise getting 18, 19, 20 million viewers on Christmas Day. Even Love Thy Neighbour's Christmas Special getting 16 million viewers one year. And the black and white minstrels of all things got audiences in the teens and millions. 
Why? Well, perhaps given how bleak some aspects of British life were in the 1970s, TV provided a welcome release from the gloom for us and our parents. And, well, perhaps there wasn't that much else to do around Christmas. Incidentally, I hated the black and white minstrel show. And that wasn't because I had some highly developed sense of what constituted racism at a young age. No, I hated the black and white minstrel show because it was utter, utter rubbish. All that singing, dancing and, well, sort of variety type performances were absolutely incomprehensible for a young boy. Never mind any of the the more controversial elements of the show. So why did programme makers feel they had to create Christmas specials? I think, as I've already mentioned, it was partly about helping BBC or ITV to win the ratings battle. But it was also an opportunity for scriptwriters and cast members to do something a bit different and have a bit of fun. And there were also really, really memorably special editions of all the children's programmes. When I was growing up, one of the highlights of Christmas was the Blue Peter Appeal. What happened was that Valerie Singleton, Leslie Judd, Peter Purvis, and of course the legendary John Noakes, would go all serious for a while and introduce the appeal a few weeks before Christmas, which was always for a good cause like disabled children or, or building inshore lifeboats. Um, it was a long time before I actually understood what an inshore lifeboat was compared to a lifeboat, but that's that's another story. What was brilliant about the appeals was that they generally asked for things which were either waste products or things that had already been used, like scrap metal, or old bits of tinfoil, or used postage stamps. These would be magically converted into shed loads of cash for the good cause, and progress would be measured on the giant totaliser in the studio, which marked progress by way of tens of thousands of stamps collected, or by tons of scrap metal. And I would wait nervously to see what the total was on the totaliser at the start of each twice-weekly episode. Out of curiosity, I found a list of Blue Peter appeals on the excellent We Love Blue Peter blog, and I was surprised to find that the 70s appeals were a bit more diverse than I had first remembered. In 1970, the ask was for old spoons and forks, so scrap metal again, which provided three caravans and an accessible log cabin for disabled children, which was really nice and a good cause. 1971 saw an ask for woolen socks and cotton pillowcases, for a boarding school in Kenya. And in 1973, our old watch straps, key rings, thimbles and metal buttons were converted into two old people's centres in Deptford and Wolverhampton, along with eight hot dinner vans, whatever they were, I guess some kind of Meals on Wheels van. And I was also surprised to see that postage stamps in 1973 went towards providing oxen and ploughs in the Danakil Desert. I hadn't remembered how many of the appeals were for foreign aid causes. And I think that's because I remember that all the effort went into collecting the buttons or postage stamps or whatever. And that was the whole point. So the really worthwhile causes rather came second to the competitive activity at school to get as many postage stamps and more postage stamps than the other classes in school. The whole thing was great fun. And that combined with the lighting of the Blue Peter Advent Crown, which was well, from what I remember, two wire coat hangers with a bit of tinsel wrapped around, meant that Christmas was on its way. Things changed a bit in 1979, which saw the introduction of the great Blue Peter Bring and Buy sale. And as I say, that changed it all for me. 
The whole point of the Blue Peace repeal was that you collected something that nobody wanted, and then that magic became something valuable, a bit like alchemy turning base metal into gold. If you had to set up a trestle table and persuade your friends and neighbours to buy your old tat, it wasn't quite the same. Although I do remember it was better than Magpie on ITV, because I remember their appeals, you know, a bit different from Blue Peter, obviously, were always for hard cash. Now, where's the fun in sending a cheque or postlord for 50 pence to them when compared to tearing off stamps for envelopes? Which reminds me that on one occasion, I actually tore out all the stamps from the family's post one day as soon as it hit the doormat. <laughs> Didn't go down very well with my father from what I remember and I did get into a bit of trouble. Anyway, enough about Blue Peter. Oh, who I remember, they always used to have an annual pantomime. Oh, no, they didn't. Oh, yes, they did. Oh, no, they didn't. Well, etc. And let's remember what other children's shows had their own Christmas editions. Screen Test with the great Michael Rod always had a special edition featuring Christmas-related films. I think to think they were normally the same ones produced by the Children's Film Foundation. And, of course, don't forget the highlight of the Friday Before Christmas at 5 to 5, we'd have the Christmas edition of Cracker Jack. Cracker Jack! Okay, how many of you shouted that along with me? I've just been looking at the Radio Times for Christmas Eve 1978, incidentally, which tells me that uh, Cracker Jack... Come on, keep up. I didn't hear enough shouting then. ...was on with special guest stars Larry Grayson and Sue Pollard. I don't remember it, but what larks that must have been. I also remember Record Breakers used to do Christmas specials as well, called All Star Record Breakers. And they generally featured lots of BBC stars from children's TV and attempts on Christmas-themed Guinness Book of Records. Although I'm a bit vague on what any of them might have been... I do remember one episode started with a huge musical number with everybody singing, well, Roy Castle mainly, singing, Would you like to swing on a star? Carry moonbeams home in a jar. And with all the special, and I use that term loosely, guests, swinging in a sort of fairground swingboat ride thing, which in itself was far more exciting than the musical number of the lame jokes, in it? I do remember Roy Castle on one occasion, under the close supervision of Norris McWhorter, of course, leading attempt on the world mass tap dancing record when hundreds, if not thousands of people, were tap dancing outside BBC Television Centre, London W12 8QT, as I'm sure you will remember. But I'm afraid that I can't remember whether it's successful or not. Sorry, Roy and Norris, I should have paid more attention. ITV wasn't left out from the Christmas mayhem. We had to suffer the likes of Rod Hull and Emu having their own Christmas adventures before... We sat down and watched Christmas-themed game shows like Christmas Mr and Mrs with the legendary and so nice Derek Beatty. Now, Gladys, does your husband Bill like brandy butter with his Christmas pudding? Or does he prefer custard? Or doesn't he like Christmas pudding at all? And after Gladys had ummed and erred and proved that she still didn't know anything about her husband Bill, despite them having been married for about 78 years, they'd still walk away with £10 and a carriage clock. I also remember watching Nicholas Parsons one year manfully hosting a Christmas sale of the century, which I seem to remember was just the same as any other sale of the century, except there were a few bits of tired tinsel and an artificial Christmas tree on the set, and the glamorous assistants who used to show off the prizes 
were dressed as elves. Now, you can imagine the props lab being sent into Norwich City Centre in the middle of July, trying to find Christmas decorations for the show, and only being able to find these meagre bits and pieces. I'm sure the producers probably thought, well, nobody will notice, as they'll all be watching it at Christmas, and the audience will either be half cut on Warnick's Advocar or something, or asleep after too much turkey. Or perhaps I've become a bit more cynical in my old age. I think there was a real distinction between the Christmas specials, which were, well, let's be generous, just the same shows with a bit of Christmas decorations and a few cracker jokes, to the ones which have lived longer in my and others' memories. In our last episode, we remembered that great sitcom, Porridge, and I think that the two Christmas specials of that show both stand alone as great examples of Christmas specials living in the memory, particularly the one entitled The Desperate Hours, which featured Fletcher and Godber being held hostage by another prisoner with the governor's secretary and the warder, Mr. Barraclough. As well as dealing with the motivations of, quite frankly, a desperate man, driven to the edge by his confinement and by the pressures of spending another Christmas in prison, it touched on the very personal relationships between all of those involved and is at the same time both thoughtful and very funny. Similarly, the final episode of the first series of To the Manor Born is one which many people remember. If you remember, Penelope Keith played, well, actually, exactly the same character that she played in The Good Life, but the um, the widowed Audrey Forbes Hamilton, ousted from a home in the manor by the self-made millionaire Richard Devere, played by Peter Bowles. The series had been incredibly popular, and the finale on Christmas Day 1979 was watched by 18 million people as they awaited the answer to the will-they-wait-they-get-together plot. But I think for me, the most memorable Christmas specials were those, like To the Manor Born, which truly united families across the generations and got them together around the television set on Christmas Day. Obviously, The Queen's Christmas Message was one of those iconic shows, but there was only one which united the nation, like no other, every Christmas night. What can I say about the Morecambe and Wise Christmas show that hasn't been said before? Not much, but I'll try. As a family, for us, this was the Christmas Day event. The famous Christmas sketches are passed into legend and are often repeated, so I think we're in danger of forgetting what a fantastic impact these comic masterpieces had when they were first broadcast live to an expectant national audience. A whole host of the great and good of music, comedy and drama appeared with Eric and Nern on the Christmas show and allowed themselves to be part of the joke. From Andre Preview, sorry, Previn, helping Eric play his own version of Grieg's Piano Concerto, to Diana Riggs starring in a play what Ern wrote, everybody took it in great spirits. And when Angela Rippon, then a very serious BBC newsreader, 
appeared in the 1976 show and revealed not only that she had long, shapely legs, but was also a fantastic dancer. There was a huge national reaction. Newsreaders were not supposed to dance. The BBC was more serious than this. Well, compare and contrast, obviously things have come full circle, and it's a surprise to find a BBC newsreader who isn't desperate to show off their dancing prowess on Strictly Come Dancing. The hoo-ha and massive publicity around Angela Rippon's appearance carried on well into January the following year, and it's hard to believe that an appearance on a light entertainment show became a national talking point for so long. But that shows what sort of place Morecambe and Wise held in our affection, and how many of us watched that Christmas Day extravaganza. The following year, 1977, featured one of my favourite celebrity sketches, when we didn't just have one newsreader, but a whole host of them, appearing in a rendition of There is nothing like a dame, nothing in the world, from the musical South Pacific. We were treated to the likes of Richard Baker, then one of the kings of the newsroom, appearing to do backflips across the stage, supported by the likes of Frank Boff, Michael Parkinson, Patrick Moore, and even the craggy-faced veteran newsreader Peter Woods. stuff. And obviously I wasn't alone in thinking that, as 21 million of us tuned in to watch the show. Although, remarkably, it wasn't the most watched show that evening. The Mike Yarwood Christmas show got even bigger viewing figures earlier in that evening. For those of you who remember Mike Yarwood, who is an impressionist, who did a good Harold Wilson, Ted Heath, Dennis Healy, and uh, I think that was about it. Um, the fact he got even more views than Eric and Ernst suggests that I think we must have been easily pleased then. I couldn't describe one Mike Yarwood sketch to you, in stark contrast to Morecambe and Wise. And the main thing I do remember was that excruciating moment at the end of the show where Mike came on stage wearing a frilly shirt and a big velvet bow tie and said, and this is me, before singing a popular song. I have mentioned this in a previous episode, but Mike, I'm sorry to break it to you. Nobody was really interested in you. They'd rather have Harold Wilson, Ted Heath or Dennis Ely. And when he started the final number, kettles across the country went on to make sure we could all get a nice cup of tea before Morgan Wise came on. Well, that's all we've got time for in our Christmas special look at Christmas specials. Looking at this year's schedules, I can see there are lots of theme programmes, but it doesn't quite feel the same. 
Fallings out leading to a punch-up at the Queen Vic or the Strictly Come Baking celebrity special are just not the same as the magic of a 70s Christmas. Am I being overly nostalgic here? Maybe, but I don't think so. Yes, what was on TV during those few days when extended families came together was reasonably limited. But the beauty of it was that it was a shared experience, which we could then all talk about when we went back to school or back to work. That's not the case today, and I'm not sure we're any the better off for it. So, why don't you top up your baby sham, break open a chocolate orange, and draw a moustache on your Uncle Peter while he's asleep after Christmas dinner? Have a wonderful Christmas, and I wish you and all of our listeners a very happy new year. Come back and join us again soon for more from My 70s TV Childhood. Thanks for listening and just a quick reminder from me we'll be back for our new season season four in 2023 so come back and see us then